tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well... Here we are, and again, fun with Scripture. This is going to be one of those weird Bible thing days, because, boy, this is a, you know, this is a quite a passage from the book of Samuel. Other times when we Trust don't have fun this. with Scripture? Well, it's pretty much fun, except for the passages about getting you know, God smiting us, and, you know, God smites you, and you'll know you've been smote, and we'll... Jolly well stay smoot. Uh, but no, this is one about David and, and Saul in a cave, and it gets very strange. So that said, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. Do thou, o Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Well, if we dare, let's open up the big book on the coffee table. Where did I put my notes? There, I actually did some stuff here. Okay. All right. I want to fill in where are my spectacles. I want to fill in the 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 story. We this is one of the most wonderful stories, and and I just want to kind of refresh everybody on what we've read in the book of Samuel. We read about the birth of Samuel, and you know that he was conceived after uh, a time of infertility. And we read about his childhood in the temple and how the Lord speaks to him, and then uh, we read about how. The high priest at the shrine of Shiloh, Eli, uh, and his sons, Pincus and Hophni, are, are not doing their job. Pincus and Hophni are, are just taking advantage of, of their position as priests. And uh, so God smites the family of Eli, Pincus, and Hophni. And uh, the Philistines capture the ark. They put it in the temples of their god. And the statues of their gods are thrown over. This is the fourth chapter of First Samuel. And this is after Eli and Hophni and Pincus are dead. Well, the ark comes back. They, they put the ark on a cart and say, just let the oxen take it where it goes. And so it came back into um, um, the territory of, of, the, of Israel. Uh, and it came to the city of Bethshemesh rather than Shiloh. And then it went to the city of Kiriath-Jarim. 
And a new priest, Eliezer, son of Abinadab, guarded the ark for the 20 years it was there. And this all is going on with the ark, and it's it finally is, is, is safe. Now, moving on, the Israelites want a king, a hereditary monarchy. Up to that point, they had been ruled by judges. And when we hear judge, we think of somebody in a black robe and with a gavel. Uh, the, the, the word really meant military leader. Uh, he, he gave counsel, hence he was a judge, uh, and arbitrated disputes. But ultimately, he was the person who called Israel to defend itself. So, goodness. Oh, that's, that's the thing from that show about judges. Thank you. Okay, moving along. Well, Saul gets anointed, and he's a... You know, a ruggedly handsome man, head taller than everybody, and the Philistines, he's defending uh, uh, Israel against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Zobites and the Amalekites, as well as the Philistines, all those ites. And, well, when he confronts the Philistines, that's the story of David and Goliath. And in chapters 16 and 17, it's very ambiguous. Uh, there are two completely different versions of how David meets Saul, but they're both in the scriptures because, well, they're two strong traditions. So they're in the scripture, and we don't take them out. We don't try to reconcile them. Well, this is where we get to Saul kind of going nuts, because after David, who is, well, I my theory is uh, that he, he is called uh, pretty, He's Yafe, which is the word for, for pretty. And, uh, you know, Saul has a manly beauty about him, but David is kind of, you know, pretty. And uh, the daughter of, of uh, Saul, Michal, falls in love with him, and apparently he loves her too. And Saul, Saul has got to get rid of David. I mean, people are saying, the women are singing, of course, the women, they they like David. And they're singing, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. And Saul thinks, hmm, this is getting politically dangerous. So Saul decides to marry David off to his daughter Merab. And David says, oh, I, I'm not worthy, I couldn't. Uh, uh, so... <clears throat> um, Merab gets married off to somebody else. You see, Saul thinks that if David is his son-in-law, he'll he'll ultimately be killed in battle with the Philistines. You won't have to worry about it. So he's he's going to try and 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 influence David and take over David's life by making him a son-in-law to him. Well, he's refused to marry Merab. Merab is married off to a fellow named Adriel, and then David is. This, wouldn't this make a great novel? It really. It, this is this is amazing stuff. You know, it's got love interests. It's got military heroes. It, you know, we do with car chases and explosions. Well, uh, um, well. Meanwhile, Jonathan, who is the the heir to the throne, the son of Saul becomes best friends with David. He just really, really likes David, and David likes him, and they're good buddies. Well, uh, Jonathan realizes that David is the person who's going to be the next king, and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't mind that. Well, Saul says to David, "Why? okay, marry my daughter Michal, 
And and uh, David, he's still kind of worried about this. Uh, he knows that Saul is up to something. And uh, um, he says, it's I'm not worthy to be the son-in-law of the king, you know. That that it is not a light thing. I think it. What does he say here? It's it's uh, um, uh, in First Samuel eighteen seventeen. Saul says to David, "Here's my older daughter Merab. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord." For Saul said to himself, "I won't raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that." And and uh, David said, "Oh, who am I that my family? I'm nobody. Why should I become the king's son-in-law?" <laughs> and well, then uh, he says, so when it was time to give Saul's daughter to Merab, or Merab to David, she was given in marriage to this fellow, Adriel. So Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And um, um, so uh, <laughs> Saul thought, I can still get him. I'll give her to David. Uh, David says, um, he invites him to be his son-in-law again. And David says the same thing. I'm not worthy to be your son-in-law. It's no light thing uh, to be the son-in-law of the king. Uh, so he says, oh, that's all right. All you need to do, oh, this is really, this is really awful. He says, uh, you don't have to pay a bride price. The custom was the groom paid a bride price. It was, it was kept for the bride in case the marriage didn't work out. It was sort of uh, marriage insurance. And so then what we got is uh, um, David saying, I'm a poor man. I can't afford the bride price. So what Saul says, don't worry. You got no dowries necessary except a hundred Philistine foreskins just to revenge Saul on his enemies. And Saul was sure that in getting the bride price, and I don't want to go into that again because it's a little lurid, uh, that David would be killed. Well, David manages to get the bride price. He is a tremendous warrior. And um, that this is the Bible. It's 1 Samuel 18, 25. I'm not making this stuff up. And to me, this is, this is history. This isn't myth. This isn't literature. These are things that, that well, <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't normally put in a, if you're trying to lionize the ancestors, your ancestors, or the founders of your nation, you know, we have myths about George Washington, I cannot tell a lie, and throwing dollar, the silver dollars across the Delaware. I bet George Washington never once threw a silver water, a silver, a silver dollar across, or across the Potomac River. I'm sure he never did that. That was a lot of money. So, um, we mythologize our heroes. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. It just says, yeah, that Saul had to go out and get this really disgusting bride price by killing a hundred Philistines. So this, the story, let me see, where are we now? Uh, so it's getting, it, it's, it, Saul's going crazy. Um, <clears throat> so he, he has these attacks of, 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 well, I suppose they're, they're paranoia and he tries to kill David with his spear. That's in chapter 19. And David escapes. He's lowered out a window by his wife. And this is just fascinating because she puts an idol in the bed, a teraphim, which is a statue of a god. I thought these people were monotheists. Yeah, they were, but they were slow to understand what monotheism meant. They still kept idols around, that sort of thing. So she she put a, a, a wig of goat's hair on this on this idol, put it in bed, and, and 
Saul's men come to arrest David, and she says, oh, he's sick. She's lowered him out down the window. And then she says, he made me do it. Uh, so her father's furious. Well, this is, this is where we are in the story. And this is, this is all kind of going nuts that, that, uh, that Saul is pursuing David. He wants to kill him. He's tried to kill him with a spear. Uh, at one point he almost kills his own son because he's so angry when Jonathan advocates for, for, uh, uh, David, whew. I'm, I'm worn out just thinking about it. Well, here we are, First Samuel, the 24th chapter. Uh, David, well, David has, has gathered uh, men around him, uh, and he's in hiding, and uh, Saul has been searching for him. Um, well, Saul took 3,000 picked men from all Israel and went in search of David and his men in the direction of the wild goat crags. And this is this would be, I imagine, in uh, in southern Judah, overlooking the uh, the desert. Uh, there, it it really is just you can get yourself lost in there. And I've heard stories of people who walked into this desert and looked around and were lost twenty feet from the road. It's it's a great place to hide. So David is hiding with his men in a cave, and. Uh, in comes Saul to relieve nature, which means Saul had to go to the bathroom. So he goes into this cave, and David and his men are hiding way back in the cave. And his men whisper to him, Saul's been put into your keep, into your, into your power. And so David sneaks up, and he cuts off the edge of Saul's uh, coat, his mantle. And then he felt bad about it. So he's, I'm not going to kill him. He's the Lord's anointed. I mean, this is where we encounter David, a man after God's own heart. That the, his enemy was put into his power and he didn't kill him. Now, later on, David kills a lot of his enemies. But we'll talk about that when it comes up. But, uh, well, Saul left the cave. And uh, David came out of the cave and he shouted to the king. He said, my Lord, the king. And he holds up this piece of the of the cloth. He says, I cut this off your robe. And I couldn't kill you because you're the Lord's anointed and you've been a father to me. I could have killed you. This is one of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible, I think. Well, you're hunting me down to take my life. Uh, um, God will judge. But who are you pursuing? I'm a dead dog. I'm a single flea. I'm nobody. This is David, a man after God's own heart. Well, when David finished saying these things to Saul, is that your voice, my son David? And Saul wept aloud, and they were reconciled. Um, well, at least for a time being. So Saul admits, I know that you will surely be king. The sovereignty over Israel shall come into your possession. Saul confesses that David is the better man. This is really something. I mean, this is... You know, you read the Bible and people say, oh, the Bible's just mythology. It's all made up. No, it's not. Well, let's, let's quickly go to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, because this is, this is also a, an amazing thing. Um, Jesus went, uh, here we go again, one of my favorite axes to grind. Jesus went up the mountain. It really just a, a large hill. He's going up from the Sea of Galilee. I po pointed out to you the Sea of Galilee, which is really a glorified lake. It's below sea level. 
and and it's very warm. It's very fertile. It's very rich. I think the population around there was at least a million. Uh, it really could sustain life. But up, you went up from this bowl, this crater in which uh, um, the Sea of Galilee was located, and it became dry and rocky and pretty unpopulated. So he go going up the mountain. He's going up from the, the Lake of Galilee. And uh, he summoned those whom he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. Now, this is fascinating. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. So there was a group called the 12, and he also named them missionaries. The word apostle means a delegate, a missionary, but a missionary that goes with authority. Uh, so they were, they were the 12 who were also apostles. And I point out there were lots of apostles but there were only 12 of the 12. We read about the 70 or 72 apostles. They have different different countings. But there were all sorts of missionaries, but there were only 12 of the 12. All of the 12 were missionaries, but not all missionaries were members of the 12. Then he appoints them. There's Simon, whom he named, whom he named the rock, Kepha. And there's James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom he named the Thundersons, the Boanerges. That means Thundersons. And Andrew and Philip Bartholomew, he gets these people together who, by nature, should have, well, killed each other. You had Simon the Zealot, uh, um, who who uh, was a member of Simon the Cananean, who's elsewhere called Simon the Zealot. He was a member of a radical terrorist group. And then you have uh, um, the tax collector, Matthew, who's also called Levi, uh, or Levi uh, who was a, a collaborator with the Romans. Uh, and these are the men he wanted, and he wanted Judas Iscariot. The name Iscariot, some people think it means man of Karioth, Ishkariot, which means there's a town, Karioth, in Judea. He would have been the only Judean uh, in the bunch. He was the odd man out. And it was Judas Iscariot uh, who betrayed him to the Judean authorities. So um, Jesus knew this, and he still wanted him. So sinner that I am, and sinner that you are, the Lord still wants us. doesn't want us to be sinners, but he still wants us to be his followers. All right. All that said, we're going to take a break, and we will come back and read some letters, um, and we'll open up the phones at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. This is an amazing story. Read it. It's, it's fascinating, the story of David and Saul. This hour is sponsored by Ave Maria Mutual Funds, where financial goals are aligned with pro-life values and fund decisions are based on investment fundamentals designed to preserve and grow wealth without violating moral beliefs. More information at AveMariaFunds.com. I'll meet you in church Sunday morning and we'll hold you down in praise. We'll pray. It's a great song. We'll meet you in church this Sunday morning. And by the way, I have to mention this. I have been remiss. I have not talked about it nearly enough. Uh, today is, of course, the March for Life. I hope you're praying. And, and if the Lord leads, it's your fasting and, and uh, just holding these people up in prayer. Because, of course, this is, 
you know, oh, I thought we won. We got abortions, Supreme Court. No, the battle is is not over by a long shot. So um, uh, keep him in prayer. And uh, uh, it's it's um, these are strange times, and uh, we need to be prayed up. All right, let us go to letters. Okay, where did I put letters? Okay, here we go. Okay, I this is from Anna Marie, and I wanted to mention something that um, she wrote in last week about uh, um, the difference between expiation and redemption. And really, we have three terms, I think. We have expiation, salvation, and redemption. And salvation is being snatched from danger, the, the danger of death. Uh, in, in terms of the Eucharist, it's, it's uh, very interesting because... The Eucharist uh, is the thanksgiving sacrifice. That's what Eucharist means in Greek, thanksgiving. And the rabbis, the sages of the Talmud said that uh, when the Messiah comes, all of the sacrifices in the law will pass away. I remember saying that to Rabbi Lefkowitz. He said, yeah, but the Messiah will have to point out in the text where that is. Well, uh, in the text of Torah. Well, all the sacrifices of the law will pass away because you won't need... Uh, uh, sin offerings, because there won't be any more sin. You won't be sinning. You don't need all those different offerings. The only offering that will still be offered is the Thanksgiving sacrifice, because we'll be so grateful for the Messiah. And the Thanksgiving sacrifice, called the, the, the Korban Todah, Korban is the general word for sacrifice, and this is the Korban Todah, the sacrifice of Thanksgiving. And the Thanksgiving is Todah in Hebrew. That's how you say thank you, Todah. The thank you sacrifice. And it's offered when you've been delivered from death. Not just when you want to say thanks for the stock tip, Lord. That's not, that's no, it's when you've been delivered from death uh, or serious illness, something very, very dangerous. You, you are offered, you offer a Thanksgiving sacrifice. Uh, and it's a personal sacrifice. It can't be offered on Sabbath, which is why I believe Mass is held on Sunday. <laughs> but that's, uh, a theme for another day. So this is salvation. You're delivered from death. Redemption is not the same as salvation. Redemption literally means to buy back. And uh, in Hebrew, that's that's uh, the goel, that, that, that a member of your family, if they find you in slavery uh, or in trouble, they will purchase you back and restore you to your place in the family. Expiation is a little bit different. It means a covering. That's what the, it's elasmos in Greek and uh, or ilostar, is it ilostarion again? Elasmos, I think one of those. <laughs> but in Hebrew, it's a uh, kippora, uh, uh, which means to cover. A kippa, uh, the the yamuka is generally called by Jews. It's called a kippa, it means it covers your head. Uh, so this idea of covering. You know, that I want to be delicate, but there were theologians in the Reformation who said that that human beings are, well, we're manure. I won't be more graphic than that. And so what is the process of redemption? What is the process of salvation? God freezes the manure and sends snow to cover it. It's still manure there. The Catholic approach is, oh, no, no. God puts the manure on the field and plants plants flower seeds in it, and out of that grows something beautiful. 
In other words, the Catholic position is we are transformed by the power of God. We are not simply, our sin is not simply covered. It is we are saved from the death of sin and we are renewed by the grace of the Holy Spirit and restored to our position in the family. So those are three different ideas. And one of the, one of the things I wanted to quote from this uh, letter that, that Anna Maria sent, uh, she says one of, one of her favorite quotes in the Bible is, He makes all things new. That's redemption. You're exactly right, Anna Maria. He makes all things new. He doesn't just cover. He isn't just an expiation. He doesn't just save us. He renews us. He restores us. He makes all things new. Beautiful. So thanks for that. I, I, I definitely uh, was grateful for that. All right, let us go. I got another one. Let's see here. This is, uh, this is going to be really tough. This is from uh, a woman who is in Stockton, California, uh, who is a nurse and an educator. Uh, she, uh, sounds like this is a woman of, of great academic and, uh, medical distinction. Uh, she is the, uh, uh trainer of clinical, uh, for, of teams for palliative and hospice care. Um, her agency does not participate in the process involved in the end of life. There's something in California called the end of life option act. You got to offer people. If you're a medical person, you must offer people the the option. As I read the act and studied this, I, this this letter is is a week or two old, but I I, I don't want to say anything that is inappropriate because I don't consider myself much of a moral theologian. I really don't. Um, but from what I read is that you're required to offer this chance to the dying to end their own lives. Uh, you advise and direct. So uh, where this nurse is working, they do keep the patient until the day they decide to ingest the medication. And our nurse returns after the family calls us that the patient has passed away. My question is, do I have a spiritual liability as a Catholic in teaching the End of Life Option Act and the process involved in the clinical team? You know, this is where I wish I was a better moral theologian, but from the best I can say, I don't think you can teach that. I not, not, you know, don't, don't go quitting on my advice. Um, if there's a, a good moral theologian listening, I would like to know. Um, the question in end of life issues is what is a person going to die of? I talked to a bishop who I won't name, but he's a great moral theologian, still is. Um, and he simply said, well, the question uh, is, what's a person going to die of? If the person is going to die of what you're doing to them, that's murder. If a person, if you withdraw uh, uh, the, the care and they die of the disease, that's natural. Now, you never withhold... Uh, uh, when it's possible, you never withhold uh, f nutrition or hydration. There comes a point where the body refuses to accept hydration. It just won't take it. and refuses to accept nutrition, even intravenously. Uh, the, the body is just shutting down. Uh, this is what people who know these things uh, have said to me. And, and so it is the disease killing them. But if I give someone... Uh, um, something that will kill them. Um, 
I, I don't mean to be harsh, but this is kind of like, uh, well, I never actually worked in a concentration camp, uh, a concentration camp uh, 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 gas chamber. I just taught people how they worked. That That's kind of the moral equivalent to me. I didn't actually, you know, execute anybody in a, I didn't have anything to do with that. But I did teach the staff how, how to put the Cyclone B canisters in the, in the shower heads and, uh, uh, how to pull them and that sort of thing. I just don't think that one can teach that sort of thing. So, oh, again, I, I would love to hear from a, a good moral theologian on this, but that's what it seems to me. And, uh, I wish I could be more, more, what's the word I'm looking for? More definitive, uh, about this stuff. A bishop just weighed in? What? Father, who, this who weighed is, in? This is live. One of the bishops of Sacramento released a statement about it. Oh, um, oh good. What did he say? He said, I urge the Catholic community and everyone of goodwill to refuse to participate in this humane practice and affirm our solidarity with the weak and vulnerable. There you go. But well, I, I would imagine that um, there would be some kind of a Catholic healthcare directive that would come out at some point too. But that's just speculation. Yeah. Thank you. That that is um, that's that's definitive. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm in the position of agreeing with the Bishop of Sacramento. And and uh, uh, you know that that can you see the equivalency to it? That that this would be like my teaching someone how to work a gas chamber in in Auschwitz. I didn't have anything to do with it myself, but I taught people how to do it. That um, say that again. It was from 2016. Yeah, that that uh, California thing has been involved for a long time. So I, I will keep you in my prayers because this is, you know, sometimes we are called to make big decisions, and uh, you know, I, I know that these days that. Uh, People, when we make the wrong decision, that is, we decide against the society that they do love to punish us. I uh, just uh, a dear friend who I, I think things have worked out, but uh, he's a, a, a very a Catholic uh, gynecologist, and uh, uh, he was fired uh, essentially and couldn't find other work. I think he has found work finally in a Catholic institution, but he couldn't find work because he strictly adhered to Catholic moral teaching regarding uh, artificial birth control and abortion, and he was punished for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the persecution of the church is getting worse, uh, and it will continue to get worse. Uh, as I say, you know, I say this constantly, that the devil never minds calling Jesus the Son of God. It's when he's the Son of Man that, that the devil has a problem. So it's if Christians will just mind their own business and stay in church, the devil and the society are fine with that. But it's when we are in the marketplace and in the hospitals and in the public forum and we are living the Christian life, that's when the devil gets upset. And that is uh, where the current governors of society get upset, the current rulers of this age. So, all right. There are plenty of lines open at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. So, uh, uh, I, 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 I got the biggest kick out of, um, 
Uh, well, I, I don't want to go into that. I had a caller yesterday who I, I, I well, I, uh, that, that, um, why am I, why am I hesitating on this? Because it was an honest inquiry. Uh, someone was asking about why we're so big on Jesus. Because he's the visible image of the invisible God. That's the amazing thing about our faith. To me, that passage, uh, in, in, uh, um, um, in St. Paul is just, one of the pivotal passages in scripture that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Um, that what we're saying is if you want to get to know what the creator of the universe, uh, um, who, if you want to get to know the creator of the universe, that's in, in Colossians one, one fifteen. uh, what we're saying is get to know a Jewish carpenter, a Jewish day, a day worker, a construction worker, a day, a day laborer. Uh, he was born in a barn. He died under arrest. Um, you know, that, wow, that's amazing. So, okay, I've got a letter here. Uh, again, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. Oh, I guess we got phone calls now. Let's take a break. And, um, <clears throat> We'll come back with uh, the word of the day and some phone calls. Father Simon says, What's up, Doc? On Relevant Radio. Today, we'd like to thank Vincent, who's listening in California, for donating his 1971 Chevy El Camino. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. He gives me peace, joy, and love, love and freedom, freedom in, soul. in my soul. It's all Jesus true. It's all true. Me out. His love That's true. It's one of the reasons that we talk about him so much. Well, let's go now to the word of the day. And this is a word that wouldn't occur to us to ask the meaning of. Um, Mary. What have you ever thought? What does the word Mary mean? Names mean things, and it may have the name uh, in in Hebrew is Miriam, uh, Miriam, Mary, Miriam, and it may have originally been from Egyptian Merit Amun, which means the beloved of God. That's that was appropriate, but then it was uh, Hebraicized uh, as from the Hebrew word Mr, which means bitter. As in myrrh, myrrh was a bitter an anointing spice that was used uh, uh, for the burial of the dead. And it was used, uh, placed in the tomb with Jesus, um, this myrrh. And uh, it was one of the gifts of the three kings. Myrrh was used for funerals. And the reason I'm thinking about it is this, because there is, uh, uh, I got a letter from, uh, from, uh, uh, a fellow named Patrick in in California, Bellflower, California, who asked about how many Marys were at the foot of the cross. And it was such a common name. It was a very common name. It was like, I would say the Irish, Mary Margaret, Mary Catherine, Mary Bridget. That It was, it was that common. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, that he says that among the women, there were many women who followed Jesus, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who was, I believe, Salome. And then there were, in Mark, it says there were many women, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the younger of James, the younger of Joseph, and 
uh, of Salome. And then Luke, the women, just says women would follow him from Galilee. But John says his mother and his mother's sister. Now, John was the only one who was there. His mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So John mentions three, but it, apparently there were many. But I think it's interesting that there were a number of women named Mary uh, at the foot of the cross. Um, the the idea of, of, of bitterness that, that in Egyptian, mer, merit means beloved, but in Hebrew, it means bitterness. And our Blessed Mother was told at the presentation of Jesus that a sword would pierce her heart. She was immaculately conceived, and yet she endured the bitterness of the suffering of her son. And was that bitterness, in, in a sense, incarnate? She wasn't bitter, but what was done to her was full of bitterness. Uh, so I just think that's kind of interesting. So the answer to the question is quite a few women. We don't know how many, but there were quite a few women, and many of them were named Mary. Uh, um, so uh, those are the four Gospels compared. But uh, I think it's interesting that a word that was related to the word for a burial spice uh, is also the, the, seems to be the Hebraic root of the word Miriam. All right, let's go to phones. Hello? You talk. I'll listen. Stephanie from Alexandria, Virginia, what can I do for you? Good afternoon, Father. I just have a quick question regarding what we are referring to when we talk about sacred scripture. Is it the entire Bible or just the New Testament? Entire Bible. From the in the beginning to the amen of Revelation, it is all the speaking of the Holy Spirit. Does that answer your question? It does, Father. Thank you so much. Oh, a simple answer and a simple question. Thank you, Stephanie. God bless you. God bless you. <laughs> wow. All right. Let's go to Joe from Abilene, Texas. What can I do for you, Joe? Hey, Father. So I'm listening yes. to Father Mike Schmidt's Bible in a Year, and it yeah. occurs to me that Isaac should be the patron saint of spoiled rich kids. Let me explain. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He is almost killed by Abraham. A servant fetches a wife for him. He is deceived by Jacob. And then God calls him home. He is the only yeah. one of the three patriarchs who doesn't have his name changed by God because he doesn't do anything. Your thoughts? He, he did one thing. He offered himself in sacrifice. Well, no, Abraham did. No, no. If you, if you towed it all up, Isaac was 33 years old when he went up the mountain with Abram. That's what the rabbis say. He was certainly old enough to carry enough wood to burn a human body up a, a, a substantial hill. I've been to that hill. It's uh, substantial. It's uh, in Jerusalem, the Haram al-Sharif, uh, the, the Temple Mount. Um, if he had not said yes to this sacrifice, uh, he could have pushed Abraham away, who was 100 years old, and said, get away from me, you crazy old man. I'm telling mother. In fact, is in the in the narrative of Scripture, his mother dies shortly after this. Uh, Sarah dies, and the rabbis say it was from a broken heart that Abraham would even contemplate killing her boy like this. Um, so he did that, and he is think about it. He went to sacrifice at thirty-three. That's all he had to do. You know, we think of Jesus as doing all these things, but what he came to do was to die on the cross. Isaac is the is the forerunner of Christ. 
He was 33. He offered himself to be sacrificed on the wood of the altar. So Isaac, you know, he didn't say anything. We, you know, have to say something and do great things. No, you have to offer yourself to God. He did that. So he was, he was in that sense, the greatest of the patriarchs. Does that uh, change your perspective a little, Joe? It sure does, Father. Um, and can I ask one ask one question? Oh, sure, um, sure. Can everyone, can everyone listening pray for my sister who was aborted? Oh, I, call her I, I will certainly. Yeah, I will certainly pray for your sister, and we'd ask all of your, all of our listeners to pray that that the Lord uh, enters her life and heals her. Uh, God bless you, Joe. We'll be praying for you. Let's go to Janice you, from Mount Laurel. You're welcome. Let's go to Janice in Mount Laurel. Hello there, Father Simon. Yes, what can I do for you? Yes, I'll be praying for Joe's sister, by the way. Oh, my. Anyway, um, here's my question. I don't know if this is a softball or not for you, but it's always kind of baffled me. In Genesis 24, verse 2 to 3 is one example. There are, I think, a couple places in Genesis where there's this expression where it seems like two people are talking. In that case, I believe it's Abraham. And uh, two people are coming to an agreement. And Abraham says, all right, come and put your hand under my thigh. And then the I, agreement is sort of settled. Yes. You might want to turn off the radio if you've got... I'm going to be very oblique, but you might want to turn off the radio if you've got children listening. Um, I, oh, okay. You're not talking to me. I, okay. No, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else. I um, got it. That, that was a... a uh, uh, um, uh, that was a, a a way to swear an oath in which you touched an intimate part of a person's body. Got uh, it. I, this is I, I, yes. That, that occurred yes, to me. But I, thought, is, I can't be right. It has to be like no men shaking hands or something. You know. No, no, no. It's no. It's it's not. Um, in fact, is the word testimony is related to the word for witness in in Latin, um, and I don't want to go any farther than that. Uh, so you got it. All right. Well, Janice, you asked, and I, I apologize to the listening audience. You can turn the radios back on now or bring the children back into the room, I think. Oh, dear. The Bible, I like I say, you can't make the, the Bible is a gutsy book. Just today's reading. Good grief. Oh, I'm going to have to so much, lay down Father. with a cold compress on my head after this. <laughs> nice to talk to you, Janice. Okay. Catching my breath and moving on. Mary from California. Yes. What can I do Hello, for you? This is Mary from Mary from California. I'm not testifying yeah. on anything, but I oh, do good. have. Um, oh, yeah, I am a medical social worker, so I'm sort of remaining uh, anonymous. It's yes. about navigating these ethical dilemmas, should we call them, in healthcare. And uh, yeah. as a Catholic, um, I've been in situations where I was requested to encourage certain people to go to hospice. Uh, mm-hmm. Who were not, who were not dying, uh, yeah. who were just kind of being put on the cart, so to speak. And um, I don't know what the question huh. is here, but I, it was hard. I had to navigate. Oh yeah. I think part of the job is being able to navigate that and not do it, and yes. do it yes. in an ethical way. And not and not get fired, <laughs> which well, I yeah, some, you know, some disapproval uh, several times, but um, I did not get fired. Um, I think 
I don't know, asking God, you know, how to navigate it. Uh, uh, I I don't know what my question is. Um, I guess my comment about that lady is that um, nurses are very um, in demand. And um, what I've noticed is that um, the longer a person stays in a situation like that and does those things, they tend to get typecast, and it's yes. hard for them to get other jobs. There's almost like a karmic yes. thing that goes with it. So yeah, yeah. myself, I, I try to avoid being in those situations, and I did avoid, uh, and then got in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But, but you, know, not, I, you know, I didn't written up for it, but uh, I guess being, you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not preaching here, but what Jesus said, you have to be... Uh, What's that thing where he said you have wise to be as serpents and innocent as doves? And this is exactly true. I, I, I will give you my mother's good advice. She said, Richard, you must never lie, but you needn't tell everyone everything at once. Uh, I, I have the example of Pua and Shifra, uh, who were the midwives of the Israelites in, in Egypt. And, and when they, they were supposed to drown the babies and they said, the Israelite women are strong. They give birth before we even get there. In other words, you can say, yeah, okay, no problem, boss, and then ignore them. You know, uh, um, that's one strategy. And to be a good listener to your your clients, I think, is another thing. If you are a very good listener, you know, a lot of times you want to, you know, you pick the hill you want to die on. You must never do anything immoral, but on the other hand, um you can you can lay low in circumstances. We don't have to fight the battle unless we have to fight the battle. I love the movie Man for All Seasons, uh, in which St. Thomas More was was put in an ethical dilemma, and he resisted uh, uh, committing himself until he had to morally. I would really recommend that to any nurses or social workers like yourself, Mary, who are in that situation. That movie is an excellent treatment of of our moral obligation to agree or disagree with authority. So there you go. Mary, thanks for the insights. I mean, so anything else you want to comment on, Mary? I would just say really quickly, as my Polish mother would say, uh, use your noodle. Use your noodle. Yes, yes, yes. Don't insult people you don't have to insult. Exactly. Did she say it in Polish? Use your noodle, Mary, you know, how to do these things. That was sort of her biblical admonishment. Yes, yes, use your noodle. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Use your noodle. Thanks, Mary. God bless you. Thanks for listening calling in. Let's go to Tom, who's calling from St. Louis, Missouri. Are you with us, Tom? I'm here. How are you doing? Pretty good. What can I do for you? Okay. John the Baptist, Jesus, and and Paul all were preaching the gospel. Yes. Give me the definition of the gospel other than good news. That's all. The simple definition which you got is good news, but it was an authoritative proclamation of... of, uh, of, uh, news that was delegated by the ruler. And, you know, someone would come in and say, I have, I have good news. The king has asked me to announce that we won the battle at Marathon. So it's an official proclamation of good news, not just good news. It's, it's you're delegated to do it. Uh, John was delegated, Paul was delegated, and it's a statement. You know, the guy would stand in the town square, bang the staff and say, oh yes, oh yes. 
the king has announced that things are doing wonderfully, that kind of thing. Does that does that answer your question? Mm, a better definition of what was the good news. Yeah. Oh, well, oh what was the good news? The good news uh when you, the the good news that was preached was the, was the good news of the kingdom, and I always define uh, the word kingdom. We'll talk about this again tomorrow and the next day and the next. Uh, the 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 kingdom is God's royal nature. The good news is that God is not far. God is God. The royal nature of God is made manifest in this day laborer from Nazareth. That you want to know what God's royal nature is? Look at Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. That's the good news, that the the kingdom of God, the royalness of God, is not distant from the common man, but available to every human being who calls out to him. And not just through the temple, not just through membership in this sacred race of people. That's the good news, the good news of God's royal nature. That was announced by John. It was announced by Jesus, announced by the Twelve, announced by Paul. Does that answer the question? Excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. God bless you. Let's go to to uh, Amari, uh, who's calling in from Austin. Hi, Father. Hi. Um, my yes. question is essentially in the moment of the consecration, when we're at Mass and we're present in the sacrifice of Calvary, mm -hmm. does Jesus feel the same pain that he felt the, like the day he was sacrificed? I mean, he went no, no, not not in the way that we would think of it. Remember, Jesus is not crucified again at Mass. Remember, for God, I'm always saying for God, all moments are now, all places are here, that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And etern eternal means timeless. So he's crucified once and for all. What happens is that we get to add our sufferings and joys and our sacrificial life to his sacrifice on the cross. He isn't re-crucified. And remember, he carried the cross with him in his resurrection. Now think of the resurrected body with the holes in the hands and feet inside. And did Jesus feel the pain? No, the pain was eternal. The love was eternal. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't a physical hurting of a human body. Uh, certainly not, but but the wounds of Christ are present at the Mass. The wounds of Christ were present in the risen body of Christ on Easter Sunday, and it's it's a mystical thing. So it isn't a re-crucifying like, you know, Jesus isn't sitting up on the heavenly throne thinking, ouch, ouch, there's another Mass, ouch, another Mass, yow, another Mass. That's not how it works. It's one moment for him. Pat, real fast, we just got about a minute. Uh, what can I do for you, Pat? God bless you, Father Simon. Just a quick question. You mentioned that myrrh was a gift that, that was given to the Holy Family um, mm -hmm. with the frankincense. Why would that be a gift to a newborn? How would the family use that? Because it was expensive. That's why. It was a valuable substance. <laughs> and we only got 20 seconds. Speaking of valuable substances, Drew is coming up. And he's certainly going to pray. I bet he's got some interesting information on the March for Life. I hope he does.